Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, Transformed. This series will look at people's encounters with Jesus and see how He transformed their lives forever. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everyone, and surprised if you were expecting Pastor Clark to be speaking today. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Harrison. Uh, I get to serve on the elder board here at Valley Brook. Some of you may recognize me from doing the announcements up up here from time to time, or or as the guy dancing behind the camera at the back of the room during worship. I, I, uh, Pastor Clark and his wife, Cynthia, are taking some well-deserved time off today. They're visiting their kids for Mother's Day, so I'm stepping in uh, to give the word today, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, but speaking of Mother's Day, uh, can we all just give a hand for all of the mothers in the room today? Yeah. Um, moms, we are so thankful uh, for all you've done for us and all that you do. Um, you know, I, I want to brag on my own mom today since I'm up here. Um, she's... Just put so much work into my life, raising me from being a hyperactive little boy to an angsty teenager, uh, helping me grow into the man I am today. Uh, But I'm especially thankful for her prayers and her encouragement in my own faith walk with Jesus. Um, She told me when I was a baby that she was part of this praying moms group, and they would pray over our future lives. And one of the things that they prayed over was our future spouse that uh, he would bring the right wife at the right time for me. And boy, did he answer that prayer above and beyond what I could have asked or imagined. So thank you, Mom, for praying that prayer. Um, and I, I love you, Mom. And uh, Moms, we, we love you. We're thankful for you. We cherish you. Uh, and we're praying for you as well. Um, but I do want to acknowledge that, that Mother's Day can be difficult for some of us, um, unfortunately, in this world that is cursed uh, with brokenness and sin. Uh, This day brings more sorrow than celebration. Um, Some of you may have recently lost a mother or a child or haven't been able to conceive a child or there's a broken relationship in your life. Um, So if that's you, I would love to just take a moment and just pray for you that uh, God will bring you comfort today. So let's just pray together. God, you are a good, good father, but you are also lover, loving and nurturing and tender. And so, God, I just pray that your loving embrace will be over um, the people who are hurting today, um, that you surround them with your comfort and your peace that goes beyond all understanding. Lord, and where you bring healing uh, where there is hurting. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing in our series called Transformed, where we've been looking at real stories of people in the New Testament who Jesus encountered and completely changed their life. The first week we looked at Mary Magdalene, who was transformed from a demon-possessed woman to a follower of Jesus and actually the first person to see him after he was resurrected. And then the rest of the disciples started out as this ragtag group of uneducated, timid men who became filled with the Holy Spirit and went to teach and proclaim uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus to a world that mostly wanted them dead. And then last week, we looked at Saul, uh, who started out as a terrorist against 
the movement of Christianity, but he became an apostle who ended up writing most of the New Testament. And his transformation was so unique that he actually went by a different name after he was changed. And I think God preserves these stories in his word to show us that no matter who we are or what we've done, Jesus can transform your life and my life too. But as we'll see today, not everyone who encountered Jesus was transformed by him. Today we'll look at two men who were both eager to meet Jesus. They had heard about the miracles that he had done, and they knew that there was some kind of connection between Jesus and God and uh, a way to, to eternal life. And so they kind of went out of their way to talk to Jesus. But ultimately, when Jesus extended both of them the offer to follow him and to change their life, only one man walked away transformed. And what's interesting about these two stories is that what became the evidence of one man's transformation actually was the barrier for the other man to be transformed. And it's my hope today that as we read these stories together, that we'll see the warning that Jesus is giving us so that the same thing doesn't prevent us from letting him transform our own lives. So let's jump in to Luke chapter 19, where we will be introduced to the first of our two leading characters. Uh, this first man was named Zacchaeus, uh, which may sound familiar to some of you through various retellings in Sunday school. Uh, if you haven't heard about Zacchaeus in Sunday school, you're probably one of the lucky ones, uh, because that means that you don't have his theme song permanently etched into your brain. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in that sycamore tree to, for Jesus he wanted to see. Yeah, it, it gets stuck in your head. Um, Rob, our children's director, actually offered to have uh, a kid's choir up here uh, sing that for you, but I thought we would spare you uh, the, the earworm being permanently stuck in your mind. Um, and usually it's pretty epic to have your own theme song, but I think if Zacchaeus knew that he would be forever known as a wee little man, uh, he probably wouldn't be so excited about it. But anyway, let's read what Luke writes in chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was a wee little, I mean a short man, he, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. I'm going to pause there because it's important for us to get some context as to why people were muttering this. Uh, as far as we know, the only thing we've seen Zacchaeus do is climb a tree, which I'm pretty sure is not a sin. Um, I think the key de detail here is that he was a tax collector, which meant that he was responsible for collecting the hard-earned money of his fellow Israelites and giving it to Rome, which was occupying their nation. And if that wasn't bad enough, tax collectors were well known for adding their own fees on top of the taxes they were supposed to collect uh, in order to make themselves wealth, more wealthy. Um, the Jewish leaders of the day actually considered them to be unclean and unredeemable. And Zacchaeus was actually the chief 
tax collector. So he had an extra bad reputation in this crowd. You know, if, if we think about this in modern times, you could picture your least favorite politician, and I'm not going to name any names, uh, but you know, imagine somebody wanting to go eat with them for dinner. It's kind of like that. Um, so let's take a break from such an unsavory character, and let's meet our other leading man, who Jesus actually encounters a few verses earlier in Luke 19, or sorry, Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy. So we don't know his name. Uh, we only know that he's called the rich ruler, or in Matthew he's called the rich young ruler. Uh, but unlike this Zacchaeus fellow, this guy has the history and the credentials to make for a great Christian. Uh, he may not have a theme song, but if he did, it would probably be something like, great is my faithfulness. Since he has been on top of following all of those commands since he was a child. Uh, but Jesus sees that there's one thing that this guy has to do before he can truly follow him. Uh, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So now we've been introduced to both candidates, and Jesus has made invitations to both to follow him. One is this vile tax collector, and the other is a righteous ruler. Pretty much the only thing that they have in common is that they're both wealthy. So let's see how each one responds to Jesus, starting with the rich young ruler. So Jesus said, then come follow me. The rich young ruler, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And as we can see from the crowd's reaction, both of these conversations didn't quite go down as they expected. You know, the rich young ruler had spent his whole life doing the right things. So surely he was exactly the kind of person that Jesus was looking for, for God's kingdom. But Jesus knew that beneath the surface of this put-together exterior, uh, this man didn't actually trust God. What he did trust was his own deeds and his own wealth. On the other hand, Zacchaeus likely spent his whole life doing the wrong things. Um, people thought that he was a waste of time for Jesus. But Zacchaeus' willingness to surrender his wealth and his treasure was the evidence that his heart had been changed 
and he was willing to entrust his life to God. And so our first takeaway from these two stories is actually a pretty amazing hope and truth that Jesus' invitation to us is not based on our history, but on our willingness to surrender to him. So if you hear nothing else today, hear the words of Jesus when he says that he came to seek and to save the lost. He isn't looking for people who have it all put together. His His invitation extends to all of us who know we don't. Maybe when you think of your past, you rank yourself somewhere between Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. Or maybe you're saying, if if you knew my past, I would make a chief tax collector look like a saint. But here's the good news. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, or who you think you are, Jesus wants you in his kingdom. And he paid the way for all of us to be right with God. The only thing that we have to do is put our faith in. In him. So that's the great hope that all of us can take away from the stories of Zacchaeus and the rich ruler. But as we read these accounts, there's also a warning that Jesus is trying to make us aware of. That although his offer for salvation is free, there's something, particularly our money and our treasure, that can prevent us from accepting that offer. Or for those of us who have accepted Jesus... It can prevent us from following him and surrendering to him completely. Pastor Clark shared this quote a few weeks ago as part of the series from Martin Luther, and I think it's so relevant to the story of Zacchaeus and the rich ruler. It goes like this. There are three conversions, three conversions a person needs to experience. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. Unfortunately, not all three happen at the same time. And it's this third type of conversion uh, that is most evident in these two stories compared to some of the previous transformation stories that we've looked at so far in this series. But all three parts are equally important and indicative of our entire spiritual transformation. You know, the, the conversion of your head and your heart are crucial for surrendering to Jesus, but the conversion of our pocketbooks is often one of the most obvious signs that we have been truly transformed. Jesus thought the topic of money was so important that 15% of all of his recorded words were dedicated to it, more than all of his teaching on heaven and hell. And if we zoom out and look at all of scripture, there are over 2,350 verses devoted to money, which is twice as much as all of the verses devoted to faith and prayer combined. But why such an emphasis on our money and possessions? I think Jesus' words in the book of Matthew provide a great summary on a lot of his teaching on the topic. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. So I think what Jesus is trying to tell us here is that there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and our treasure and how we handle money. And when he's talking about money here, he's not just talking about our cash. He's talking about all the stuff and things that we own. You know, our, our cell phones, our clothes, our lattes, our Netflix subscriptions, our cars, our houses, our retirement accounts. If you got crypto, your crypto, uh, our vacation bondage, it's anything that you would say, yeah, that, that thing is mine. You know, we see this money-heart connection in the actions of both Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. You know, on the surface, the rich young ruler said that he was willing to do what it took to get eternal life, but his unwillingness to let go of his treasure showed that he was really invested in his own kingdom, not God's. On the other hand, Zacchaeus said, Here, Jesus, take what I have and use it to serve the least of these and bring justice to the hurting. The change in how he treated his treasure revealed that his heart had changed. I like how pastor and author Randy Alcorn uh, summarizes this. He says, our handling of our money is a litmus test of our true character. It's an index of our spiritual life and our stewardship of our money and possessions becomes the story of our lives. So I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what story does my money tell about my life? Where does my bank account say that my heart is? What do I value the most or what possession would I hate to lose? And what activities do I have to fund in order to be happy? What do I spend the most time shopping for? I think if many of us are honest with ourselves, the investments that we make with our own money have far more to do with building our own kingdom and far less to do with building God's kingdom. And I think the trap that a lot of us as Christians fall into is that we try to have it both ways. You know, we'll happily say to Jesus, I give you my belief, I give you my praise, I'll give you my volunteer time and space on my social media page. But when it comes to our finances, there's something that makes us feel uncomfortable and makes us want to rationalize that, you know, maybe God wants me to decide what I want to do with, with it, not him. But what Jesus is saying here is that we can't have it both ways. That it's impossible to love God while loving our money. It's like a fundamental law of human nature. You know, if I were to ask you, uh, say, hey, you want to grab lunch after this? Um, and you said, sure. Um, and I said, okay, great. Why don't we meet at Bear's Barbecue and Grassroots right at noon? And you'd say, well, which one is it? Because Bear's is in Windsor Locks and Grassroots is here in Granby. And if I said to you, let's meet at both right at noon, you would look at me like I was crazy because you know that you can't be in two different places at the same time. And Jesus is saying something similar here. He said you can't love both God and money at the same time. It's just not possible. But why are we so drawn to money as a master in the first place? And I think money is such an attractive master because it seems to immediately fulfill three of our deepest desires, pleasure, power, and possessions. Money offers us the ability to obtain and do things that make us feel good, to influence the people and systems around us to do our will, and to be in control of the limited resources 
of this world. You know, we, all we have to do is look to the news at Elon Musk, uh, for example, of this. He didn't like the way that Twitter was being run, uh, so he just decided to buy it so he could put his control over it. You know, none of us have the spending capabilities of Elon Musk, but to some extent we probably wish that we did so that we could exert the same kind of control on the world around us. And I think this is the same thing that the rich young ruler believed as well, that his wealth could get him what he wanted uh, instead of God. But I don't think it's a coincidence that when Jesus was led into the desert, Satan tempted him by appealing to these same three desires. These longings are part of our God-given nature. But instead of letting God fulfill these desires, we often try to fill them with more stuff instead. While money and possessions may promise to satisfy us, they are ultimately a deceitful master. I think all we have to do is look at our own spending to know that the things we buy never satisfy our desires for long. There's always a newer phone with a better camera. Uh, there's always a more fashionable outfit. Uh, there's another vacation destination to get to. There's always a nicer car or a bigger house or a better retirement investment. There's always another thing on our wish list that we believe will make us happy. But every time we get that next thing on our wish list, how long does the enjoyment really last? Before we start thinking about the next thing on our wish list that we think will satisfy us better. King Solomon, who was arguably the richest man to ever rule over Israel, even figured this out, that there was never a point where he had enough. In Ecclesiastes, he writes, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Basically, what Solomon is saying here uh, is what the late rapper Biggie Smalls so eloquently put as, more money, more problems, right? We see this over and over again, but we keep trying to buy our happiness anyway. I find these other words from Solomon in the book of Proverbs to be helpful as well, where he says, do not wear, out, wear yourself out to become rich. Be wise enough to restrain yourself. When you gaze upon riches, they are gone, for they surely make wings for themselves and fly off into the sky like an eagle. I love this imagery because if next time I go shopping and I'm pushing my cart out into the parking lot, I just envision whatever I bought in my cart like flying off into the sky like, like a helium balloon. Um, but it, it's true. You know, we're tempted to think that if we had more money, it would solve more of our problems. But our money and possessions can really disappear at any time, and they certainly don't come with us when we die. You know, this is why Solomon is saying, be wise enough to restrain yourself from putting your trust in money and possessions. And this is the same thing that Jesus is trying to tell the rich young ruler when he says, hey, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth, but store it up treasures here in heaven. But while our possessions here on earth won't last, there is an amazing promise in Jesus' words that I don't think we should miss. When we are generous with our money to give to the poor and the hurting, we're actually investing in eternal rewards 
in heaven. When Jesus talks about storing up treasures in heaven, he's not referring just to our salvation, but an increase in our capacity for joy in eternity. The topic of eternal rewards can be a whole entire sermon in itself, but Jesus teaches over and over again that our generosity in this life will directly lead to increased reward and responsibility in the next. And those things will last forever. This is different than the prosperity gospel, which says if I give to God now, he'll give me more stuff in this life. This is much, much better. God created in us those three desires of power, pleasure, and possessions, and he wants to be the one to fulfill those desires beyond anything that this world could ever give us. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis that I think captures this so well. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think if we could grasp how incredible the treasures in heaven will be, it would be a no-brainer for us to invest there. If you and I were to teleport back into the 90s and I offered you, you could uh, you know, either a stock of Blockbuster Video or Amazon, uh, you would say, uh, I would take the Amazon, thank you very much, because you know today that Blockbuster is worthless and Amazon has grown exponentially. And Jesus, who stepped out of eternity, is trying to tell us something similar. He's saying, hey, all the stuff around you, including Amazon stock, may seem valuable to have at this point in time, but it's all going to be worthless in the blink of an eye. Instead, he says, but God's kingdom, that's going to pay back dividends beyond what you can imagine. I think Zacchaeus understood this when he was willing to walk away from his money as his master and towards Jesus instead. And God incentivizes us to do the same. So when we realize that money is a terrible master and God is a perfect one, how do we actually do that? How do we turn and serve him with our money? I know the question comes up when we read the story of the rich ruler, you know, is God calling me to give up everything I have to serve him or or half of my possessions like Zacchaeus did? And the truth is for some of us, he might be calling you to do that. He might be calling you to give up your salary and your home and your American lifestyle and actually go serve him in a mission field to reach people who need Jesus so desperately. But if all Christians gave up everything that we had, there wouldn't be as many resources to invest in missions and the poor. So God does call the rest of us to work and get paid a salary so that we can generate money not to build our own kingdoms and our own wealth and our own comfort, but to build his kingdom and take care of the needy around us. God calls all of us to live generously, above and beyond what might be comfortable for us to do, so that we rely on him and not our money. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul, the same Paul that we talked about last week, uh, gave this instruction to the church in Corinth, and I think it's helpful for us today. He said, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I think what he's saying here is that God gives us abundance so that we can be generous to others and to give cheerfully and willingly like Zacchaeus did. Now I know uh, some of us might be thinking, hey, that's a great command for all of the rich people. They should definitely give more. Um, but you know, I'm just trying to make ends meet. You know, have you seen inflation? Have you seen gas prices? I'm just trying to get by right now. Well, I think it's helpful for us to get a little bit of a global context here. Um, you know, if, if you make the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, your income is in the top 14% of everyone in the rest of the world. Right? If you make 60000 a year, you would be in the top 1% richest people in the world. The truth is most of us in America are living in abundance, we just choose to spend our money on ourselves to the point where we feel like we don't have enough to give generously. And when God asks us to give generously, he wants us to give the portion of our income and our wealth that shows that our hearts are entrusted to him and not our money. You know, if you're not sure where to start, um, God gives a great starting point in his scripture uh, by giving us the tithe, which he defines specifically as 10% of our income to the local church. Uh, it's kind of considered to be the training wheels of giving generously. And uh, I believe with, all, with a little bit of sacrifice, all of us can get there. But the tithe is not a ceiling, it's just a starting point uh, for a generous life of trusting God instead of our money. But here's the cool thing. Because there's a link between our treasure and our hearts, if we, the more that generously we give, towards God's kingdom, the more that our hearts will be inclined to the things that he cares about and the things that he's doing here on earth. So if you feel like your heart has been drifting away from God, you know, one thing you can do to bring it closer to God is to give towards his purposes. And then you'll find that your heart will be drawn towards him and those things as well. So what does this look like in real life? You know, during this series, we've uh, had the blessing of hearing from several people here at Valleybrook give their testimony about how God has transformed their lives. Uh, and today we have the great pleasure of hearing from Joanne Perry as she her shares her, her testimony of how God transformed the way that she uh, considered her finances. So please welcome Joanne to the stage. Hi. Um, this is not an easy topic to discuss because it is so personal 
And truly, it's a heart decision between you and God. Um, and Harrison did an amazing job outlining it, and I still fall so far short from what he described. But a little bit of background on my transformation and what I was like before. I'm an accountant and a CPA by trade. I chose that profession at a fairly young age because I love the um, checks and balances and control that it gave me. Um, and as uh, in my 30s, I was saved as a Christian, maturing, um, studying the Bible, raising our kids, um, supporting my husband, serving in ministry, all these progressions, except with our finances. Ken uh, had started his business. It was still early on in those years, and um, I had made the decision, we had made the decision for me to stay home full-time, give up my salary, um, and, and be a full-time mom. Um, I did all the banking in our home because of my profession and uh, the time that I had, and um, I found this season to be new, a season of tight finances with um, one salary missing. And um, I had heard Clark preach, as Harrison did today, that it's a transformation that takes time in your mind, and then you finally can get it to your heart, and then you can release it. And that was definitely what was happening for me. I had heard about it multiple times. I had studied it in the Bible. Um, and it was finally a Sunday that uh, the preacher was speaking, and I heard him say, you need to let go. What are you holding on to so tight that you're not willing to let go of? And for me, it was our finances. So in this tight season in our life, I let go and um, had that conversation with Ken, and he agreed to that we were going to tithe moving forward. And it was a huge relief and a weight that was lifted from um, both of our shoulders um, once we decided to do that. So how has Jesus transformed our lives since then? Once that decision was made, it was solid. It's the first check that we write every month. It's on our gross income. And that helped me to just control, turn over the control of our finances as a whole, as a family, to God and trust in Him. We saw God's provision and blessing in our lives and our finances and began to give to other kingdom causes. One of the first was the capital campaign here at Valleybrook. We shared um, with our kids that we'd be sacrificing because what we were giving was going to be above and beyond that tithe for God's kingdom, for what he's doing through this church. And our kids agreed with that. Um, as as uh, we grew beyond that, we continued, um, or we began to support other Christian causes and organizations, missionaries, child sponsorship, um, special causes and events um, that are dear to our heart to give. So this is all easy to do when you can do it, um, when you're doing it and life is good. Um, but the test really comes when things in your finances turn upside down, which can happen when you lose a job or when something crazy happens. And that's what happened in our lives about 10 years ago. Ken's company has a check writing division. Um, they write checks for clients to the tune of millions of dollars um, that go through those accounts on a daily basis. Tens of thousands of checks outstanding each and every day. And one day, unannounced, the federal government showed up and seized all those accounts pertaining to that leg of his business. It was millions of dollars. The government was able to do this because of the Patriot Act, um, where they're allowed to seize assets first and investigate after. So Ken and his business partner were later informed that one of their clients using this service had a shell corporation that was three layers removed from the one that they worked with. 
and the government was investigating that, but that gave them still the right to come in and take all that they did. Needless to say, our life was turned upside down immediately. Our income was cut immediately two by two-thirds, and we did not know what the next week would hold, let alone the months to come. Um, it was a nightmare, and I can clearly, clearly remember driving, pulling over in Salmonbrook Park to take a call from Clark two days into this, where he just said, hey, just checking to see how you're doing. And I said, the accountant in me is doing the math. I'm going in my head saying tens of thousands of outstanding checks with non-sufficient funds charges against their bank accounts would be two to three million dollars. And that would bankrupt the company, bankrupt us, and probably see lawsuits from all of Ken's clients at that point. Clark prayed with us, and Clark and Cynthia prayed through this season with us along with several of our Valleybrook family. That was just such a blessing. And um, it reminded me that um, we are, my, my life first is to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. And I really needed to get out of my own head, get out of the math I was computing and just trust in him. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And we knew that's what we had to do. We didn't know what the future held. held. It was a scary season but we were going to trust him. So whatever little bit came in in this season, we gave, and we continued to give that tithe, and God was faithful. Um, through it all, whatever came, so um, eventually the government dropped the charges, dropped the suit, and returned the money to Ken's clients, um, and we have moved on. It cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in the process, but God was faithful unbelievably through that whole process. So what is our life like now? When our finances are governed by your heart and the love of the Lord, it is just a true joy. You don't even have to think about it when it comes to the tithe. And what you give above and beyond that, wherever that may be, whether it's church or another organization or foundation that you have a heart for, God just gives you joy in giving and releasing those funds for his kingdom. Um, one of the other things that changed in our finances when I went back to work full time um, Ken took over doing our finances in our home. And that was such a blessing because I had so lim limited time at that point. But it's also important in any marriage that you both know what each of you is making, bringing in, what you're spending and how you're giving. And that is just, um, that's just a blessing. And so I encourage that for anyone. As well as I'm gonna do a plug for financial peace. We took it years ago. Um, financial Peace University, and I would recommend it. I use it when I financial, do financial counseling with individuals and businesses today. So we have a generous, faithful, loving God who's always with us, and he wants our whole life, and it really is. When you let go of that and when you can let go of your finances, it's such a joy and such a relief because God is in control. Thank you, Joanne, for that incredible testimony. Um, and I think we can all look to Joanne, Zacchaeus, uh, and, the, and the stories of their uh, life transformation uh, with Jesus through their finances uh, as an inspiration today to trust God uh, with not just our head, not just our heart, but our treasure as well. You know, in the end, 
all of our money and our stuff will ultimately fail. But God's purpose and his plan will always prevail. And for those of us who are in Christ, he actually promises us that when we're generous, that he will reward us. Um, He'll take care of us in this life and reward us in the next. But this all starts first with accepting that free gift of salvation that Jesus offers. You know, they, they, they offer to take not just your heart from your finances to God, but your life from your death to life. He on the cross paid for your sins and my sins. And it doesn't matter what our history is. It just matters that we surrender to him. If you haven't made that decision to surrender your life to Christ today, I would love to offer you the opportunity to do that today. Now, in the moment, uh, we're all gonna pray together and I'm gonna give you some words that you can pray back to God um, to take that opportunity. Um, the words themselves aren't anything special. What matters is that it comes from your heart. So why don't we all bow our heads and pray together? And if that's you and you wanna commit your life to Christ today, just repeat these words back to God. Say, God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now I commit my life to follow him. Say amen to that prayer. And then for all of us, God, we just confess that there are times in our life when we want to have control over our money and not give it over to you. That we've been allured by what money offers us when only you can truly satisfy us. So God, in this moment, I just pray that you allow us to release to you the thing that's holding us back from fully surrendering it to you. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you work in our hearts to move away from building our own kingdoms and building your kingdom here on earth and being generous to a world that desperately needs the love of Jesus. So God, as we go forward from here, I just pray that you continue to transform our lives and be a blessing to those around us like you're a blessing to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.